Good morning. Uh, my name is Christoph. I am the minister to youth and families here at Faith. And I am blessed with the opportunity to uh, bring you God's word this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Psalm 14. Psalm chapter 14. We have been worshiping through the word of God, through the book of Psalms this summer. Uh, we have been picking a chapter out of the Psalms that we have read from the previous weeks uh, from our Bible reading plan. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 14 this week. And before we read the Psalm, I feel like I need to share that this was not my first choice of Psalm to preach on. Um, I, I read through this week's Psalms. And I read specifically through Psalm 13 and 16 multiple times. And the first time I read through them, I said, well, certainly not doing Psalm 14. All right, which one are we going to do? And then God was like, no, we're doing Psalm 14. Um, Part of the reason I didn't want to preach on this is that as I read it, it revealed a a bit of arrogance in my heart. I I felt the sting of conviction. And as I was feeling that sting of conviction, I was like, no, 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 no. Then something happened. The more I read through it, the more I felt God's grace and mercy shine through that conviction. And so this morning, as we work through this psalm, I want to encourage you, if you feel the sting of conviction as I do, not because of anything I say, but because as we are reading through God's word, you see this truth. I want to encourage you that where conviction and sin and pain abound, God's grace and mercy and goodness abounds all the more. I want to put one more interesting note out there. So if you have your Bible, if you have a pen, a pen and a pencil, I thought this was really interesting. We're not going to go any more deeper into this, but if you, if you have Psalm 14 in front of you and you have a pencil, I want you to write down Psalm 53. And then what I want you to do for a little bit of homework is to go and read Psalm 53 either later today or um, later this week, because Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 are practically the exact same psalm. And I thought that was incredible, that God's word has this psalm in here, not just once, but twice. And so what I want you to do is, as we're going through this this morning, put it in the back of your head, hey, Psalm 53, I should read that, and then check it out. But um, we're going to be in Psalm 14. We are going to go through the whole psalm here in just a second, and then we are going to break it down into four sections. But before we do that, I want to pray that God would be the one who is uh, in control during this time. Let's, let's pray. Lord, you are so good. Um, Father, I just want to, first of all, thank you um, for that time of worship and music this morning. Um, it, was, it was water to my soul to sing of your praises. Um, I am so thankful of your grace and mercy and the fact that we get to sing back to you the praises of who you are and who we are because of what you did for us. God, I pray that as we are going through Psalm 14 this morning, I pray that you would make your truth known. I pray that you would help us not to be distracted by the things of this world, but you would help us to focus in on your word, on your truth, on who you are and who we are because of what you have done. God, I pray that if there's anything I would say this morning that would come from selfish ambition, or if there's anything that I would say this morning that is untrue, I pray that you would protect the ears out here and you would just, you would fill them with truth and instead you would fill them with your grace and mercy. Help me to be faithful to your word this morning. And God, I pray that this time would be worshipful. I pray that you would convict where you need to convict and I pray that you would give mercy where you need to give mercy. 
We love you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we read this, I am going to drink some water. Seriously, uh, Robbie and Jason, thank you guys for worship. I feel like I sang too loud and, (laughs) uh uh-oh. All right, Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And we are going to break this psalm down into four sections. And I'm going to give you kind of the, uh, the map on where we're going this morning. First, in verse 1, we are going to be introduced into this character, the fool. In verses 2 and 3, we are going to ask the question, who is the fool? In verses 4 through 6, we are then going to explore the question, what is the fate of the fool? And then finally, to wrap it all up, we will ask the question, what is the hope for the fool? So, verse 1, we are introduced to this psalm with a line that feels a little less like a psalm, and it feels kind of like a proverb. It feels like something you would read out of the book of Proverbs, right? It explicitly states a condition, and then there is a requirement for this condition. So, the condition in this case is the fool, and the requirement for the condition is that in his heart, he says, there is no God. The word fool is an interesting one. It conjures up a lot of images. There's a lot of different characteristics that are involved with being foolish. The fool is unwise, not ignorant, but unwise. There's a difference between ignorance and foolishness. For the ignorant, a decision or an action is made that is is out of a lack of knowledge, is a lack of understanding. To be foolish, though, is to make a decision, to make an action, and to have some sort of base understanding of the decision you're making, and you're just making the unwise decision. I want to give an example. I think it's important to set up what it means to be foolish and what it means to be the fool before we go on any further. Um, I'm going to give an example that I think everyone will identify with, and everyone will probably be upset with me for pointing out. You've been warned. I kind of apologize ahead of time, but I also don't. So it is, it is pretty universally known that one of the healthiest things you can do for yourself is to get an optimal amount of sleep each night, right? That is, that is pretty well known. Sleeping is one of those incredible things that God has baked into the fabric of humanity that we need. For, for six to ten hours a night, you are unconscious as your body recoups energy to prepare for the next day. Sleep is so important. It is one of the reasons why when you ask the parents of a newborn— um, how they are doing, usually their answer will somehow revolve around how much sleep they are or are not getting. 
And as a parent of a newborn, I apologize if that has been my answer over the course of the last six weeks. It's just kind of the way it is. So what does this have to do with foolishness? Two words. Snooze button. Snooze button. So if you are like me, you have used this feature on your phone or alarm clock, right? Listen, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the, the snooze button is literally the worst. Most of the time, you don't fall back asleep. You are anxiously sitting there like a ball of stress waiting for that snooze button to go back off, right? Then on the times when you actually fall back asleep, right, you typically wake up and, and you're more tired and less rested than if you were to actually have gotten up when your alarm actually went off, right? I cannot think of a more foolish thing that we do than hit the snooze button. It is ridiculous. It accomplishes the exact opposite of what we actually expect it to do. We have the baseline understanding. We know that sleep is good. We know that feeling rested is good. And yet here we are hitting that button. This psalm, however, does not say that the fool says in their heart, just five more minutes, but rather there is no God. It says that they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that for the longest time, I saw the beginning of this psalm as a, as a weapon to be used against people who did not believe in Jesus, who, who lacked the knowledge to admit that God was real. For a long time, I thought that this passage was clearly throwing atheists and agnostics and New Agers under the banner of fool. We're going to dive into who the fool is in, in just a moment, but I want to say that the, verse 1 doesn't say, the fool says in their brain, there is no God, but rather it says that it comes from the heart the fool is not the fool because they lack some sort of knowledge or intellectual understanding of God, but rather the fool is one who denies God from their heart. Their foolishness is revealed in their passions and priorities and their desires and actions. Last week, Pastor Jay had brought up this Puritan paradigm that is sometimes used of head, heart, and hands, which is a lot like knowledge, passion, and action, right? While they all interact and impact one another, I think it's important to see that our hands will ultimately act from where our passions lie. So the question is, if this psalm isn't pointed to the atheist, agnostics, and new agers, who is it pointed towards? Let's read on. Let's read verses 2 and 3 and ask that question. Psalm 14, starting in verse 2, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. We are the fool. Humanity is the fool. From the moment Adam and Eve sunk their teeth into the fruit, our natural bent would be towards foolishness. This does not mean that we don't do good things from time to time. But what it means is that outside of the work of God in our lives, our motives, our passions, our heart will always be bent away from God. 
the lament of Psalm 14 is not that there is an individual or even a group of individuals, but that the human condition as a whole is bent towards folly and foolishness. This is later affirmed in the New Testament in Romans chapter 3. If you have your Bible, why don't you flip to Romans chapter 3. I want to set this up for just a second, though, before we read it. So as you're turning there, um, Paul, who wrote the letter of Romans, um, wanted to remind Rome of this truth. There's a little context here about the church in Rome. Um, Romans is often considered Paul's gospel, the gospel according to Paul. And he's writing to a a church that is composed of both Jewish and Gentile believers, right? And there was this division between the Jewish and the Gentile believers in Rome as the Jewish believers thought they had some sort of moral advantage over, um, over the Gentile believers because of their heritage. And Paul spends a good portion of the first half of this letter reminding the Jewish Christians that their hope was not found in any sort of moral advantage or history that they had, but rather in the exact same hope that they had in Jesus. There was no moral advantage We were all under the same banner of fool. Romans Romans 3, 9 through 12. Let's, Let's read that. Romans 3, 9 through 12. Paul then saying, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Sounds a little familiar, right? Paul is literally quoting Psalm 14 in his letter to the church in Rome. And let's not turn away from the fact, by the way, that This psalm, Psalm 14, was written by David, the king who is referred to as the man after God's own heart. David lamenting over this shared foolishness that humanity had, this curse that we sit under. For so long, I read the first part of this psalm without the context of the rest of the psalm. And it was so easy to arrogantly say, wow, can you believe those fools who don't believe in God? How foolish are they? The fact, though, is that when we continue reading through Psalm 14, it becomes more and more clear that we are all foolish in our hearts. This should humble us. And and if your initial reaction when you read verse 1 was the same as mine, you're like, all right, we we are going to slam dunk on those who don't believe in God. Listen, there is grace and mercy for you. Being humbled is a good thing. I think of it a lot like a garden, right? Um, we are like those gardens that you drive past. I think about, uh, we, we used to live um, in Door County and there was this like community garden and you'd see some of these plots sometimes that there was just weeds that were going all over the place and it was kind of broken down. And I, I think we are oftentimes like these gardens, right? Um, and, and a lot of times our sin and our arrogance and our, and our foolishness are like those weeds tangling themselves around any fresh flowers and fruit that may bloom. But when we are humbled, it is like God being the good gardener, walking through, coming and pulling out those weeds so that fresh flowers and vegetables and fruit can flourish. It is a good thing to be humbled. It is a good thing to recognize this shared nature of humanity that we are all the fool. 
There is a little more pruning that has to happen though. If verse one introduces us to the fool and verse two and three reveal who the fool is, then verses four through six are going to reveal the fate of the fool. Let's keep reading. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord, they are great, they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. If God is with the generation of the righteous, as verse 5 states, then the fate of the fool is a life apart from God. A heart, a, a passion, a desire that denies God is a heart that consumes those around them. This isn't a consumption based upon necessity, like a quenching of a hunger pain, but it's, it's a consumption that comes from a heart of greed. It's a consumption that comes from a heart of, of, of lust. It's a, it's a consumption that comes from all these bad things. It's a heart that is never satisfied. It moves on from thing to thing, from person to person, looking to fill a void that can never truly be filled by any earthly thing. Look at the two things that it talks about the evildoer consuming, people and bread. Consumes people like bread. And there's these two things. We, when we are consumed by our sin nature, we no longer look to the people in our lives as fellow image bearers of God whom we are called to love and, and show mercy towards and show grace towards and love and forgive and serve, but rather we see those who are around us as commodities that we can use to fulfill selfish desires. It is like, exactly how we had go after the things of the earth, the things that God has called us to steward, instead of stewarding and we consume them, seeing them as commodities that we can use. And what is the consequence of this consumption? What is the consequence of this? There will be a day where we stand before our holy God and we give an account for the life we lived. Verse five states that God is with the generation of the righteous, but for the evildoer, the consumer, the foolish, they will be there in terror, standing before their creator. And my question is, church, do we believe this? Do our hearts affirm this truth or are we just people who are comforted by tiny actions of goodness and intellectual lofty ideas of who God is or are our hearts transformed in such a way as to, as to pursue Jesus? For the longest time, I, I grew up thinking that um, certainly if there was a God, then the good deeds and good intentions that I had would someday admit me into heaven. Completely foolish in believing that. If I believe that in my best actions outside of God, that somehow that's going to earn me a ticket into heaven, it's kind of like believing that you will get an eternity, you will get a heaven without God. To believe that your good works are enough to get you into eternity with God is basically stating you want all of the heaven and none of the God. I remember 
working for a Christian radio station, and I was sitting across from uh, my boss, our program director, who had just read this book that pointed this out and, and had asked me the question. And we sat and, and, and prayed about it and thought about it for a while. The, the question was, if you could have all of the perks of heaven— you could have all of heaven. You could have all of your friends there, all of your family there, but there was no Jesus. Would you take it? And I think we, we obviously would say no, but that's, think about that for a second. Do we believe that to be true? I want to be really careful moving forward in this next part because I don't want to leave you with the impression that what you do saves you. We believe that we are saved by faith in Jesus alone, but oftentimes our faith is revealed by what we do, right? It says here in this psalm that the fool consumes. I, I want to think about how many times have you come to church on a Sunday morning expecting to be entertained? You know, this time that we gather together as God's family, we literally sing songs to the only one who is worthy to be praised in such a way as to have songs sung like that to him, to pray collectively as God's family, to partake in the Lord's Supper, remembering the work he did on the cross, to hear the proclamation of his word, to be sent out as a family on mission to tell the world of the good news of what we had gathered together for. How many times have we, have we taken that specific time and treated it as a moment of entertainment? Oh, I didn't really like that song selection. Yeah, the preaching was all right, but it didn't really feel like it was applicable to me. I wonder what time the Bucks game is tonight. We are so foolish at times. We consume. We don't see the gifts that God has blessed us with as gifts, but we treat them as commodities to be consumed. I'm going to give another example, and I'm going to put my youth ministry hat on for a moment. What are we discipling our children towards? Sarah and I welcomed our our third child into the world uh, at the end of May, and I think one of the most eye-opening things for me uh, from being a parent over the last five years has been how, how much I can see the things that my children pick up on that I, I would never have expected them to pick up on, right? And this leads to like really encouraging moments and then sometimes it leads to some really like, oh, I do that kind of moments, right? If you're a parent, take a moment to ask yourself, how do your children how, how does the way your children act reveal what your heart desires? Do you see your children valuing the word of God, time in prayer, their church family, caring for the least around them, serving those in need? Do you see them showing the fruit of the spirit, joy, peace, patience? Or do you see them valuing high school sports? Do you see them valuing things that are temporal and, and foolish? My intention is not to make you feel disheartened. That's not my goal. My goal is hopefully that God has stirred our hearts to realize that we are all guilty of playing the fool. We have all at times and all continue to at times say that there is no God in our hearts. And the question then is what 
hope is there for us? What hope is there for the fool? I am so glad that David does not end his psalm on verse 6, right? Because there's verse 7. There's verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. There is salvation. There is hope. Living in the year 2021, we are incredibly blessed to be able to read our Bible from cover to cover, knowing that it all points towards Jesus. David, writing this psalm, knew that there would be hope, knew that there would be salvation for the fool, knew that that was not the end. He knew that Psalm 6 was not the end of the story. He knew that God would restore his people. Oh, we are so blessed to know exactly how God would do that. In what an incredible way that he did it. He took on flesh. God took on flesh. He came to live among his creation. He lived the life that we could not live, yet paid the price of being the fool. He paid the price that we all deserve so that we may know the riches of his grace and mercy. If there is any opportunity to taste the kingdom of God, to walk with God, to feel that grace and mercy, it is purely because of the work he did. One of my favorite passages that details this is Philippians chapter 2, 5 and 11. If you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Any of the youth who are here this morning will know that Philippians 2 is just like my favorite. I just, I, I quote it all the time. One of our disciples now, a disciple now, we're based on Philippians 2. I just, I love Philippians 2. Listen to this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I love that. There is salvation. There is hope. His name is Jesus. I want to address a couple groups of people as I'm wrapping things up. First, the person who is here this morning and has never surrendered their life to Jesus, there is no better time than today and there's no better moment than right now. If you listen to this this morning and you felt the weight of sin, if you felt the weight of brokenness, if you felt the weight of the foolishness of the world, your foolishness, our foolishness, You have seen in your heart, you recognize the fact that you say there is no God. There is hope and salvation for you. 
Jesus promises to forgive all of your sin. He promises to send his Holy Spirit to walk alongside you in this life. He promises an eternity spent with him. Stop placing your hope in the world. Stop placing your hope in foolish things. Place your hope in Jesus. He is faithful to forgive and there is nothing, nothing you have done that he cannot forgive. Second, to the Christian who reads Psalm 14 and feels shame, give it to Jesus. Jesus does not shame us in our sin, but rather he convicts us and uses it to remind us of his grace and mercy. When you placed your trust in Jesus, the promises were to forgive all your sins, past, present, and future. And it doesn't undermine the severity of sin. It is still the brokenness of the world. It still has its earthly consequences, but we can rest well in the promise found in 1 John 1 verse 9 that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Feel that conviction, give it to Jesus. Lastly, to the faithful saint over the years, to the faithful Christian over the years. You hear Psalm 14, you've heard this, you know the struggle, you know the truth that is found in Psalm 14. He is faithful to see the good work that he has started in you to completion. Continue to lean on Jesus daily. Saturate yourself in his word and in prayer. Find younger Christians and disciple them. Remind them of these truths as often as you can. Be there to pick them up when they trip over their own foolishness, like you did many times during your walk with Jesus. Church family, we will someday stand before our great and good God, and he will either judge our lives based upon our foolishness or or based upon the great work of Jesus that he accomplished on the cross. Our victory lies not in our own works, but on the works of Jesus. Let's pray and then boldly proclaim in song the victory we have in the cross. God, thank you so much that there is hope in you. Thank you so much that we do not have to live in our foolishness, but we can instead know that you are good, you are faithful to forgive us, that the work you did on the cross is is totally sufficient for us in our most foolish moments. God, I pray that you would help, uh, you would you would create a fire in us to not only live in the truth that there is hope and salvation found in you, but to also go and proclaim that truth to the corners of the world, to those who we work with, those who are in our houses, those who we play different sports with or whatever, Lord. Help us to proclaim that good news. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, and your goodness. We love you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.